Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Lord Jesus, we thank you that because of your finished work on the cross, because you paid for all of our sin, that you hold on to us. It's not we that hold on to you. You will reject someday the man, the woman, who thinks that they can earn their way to heaven by human merit. Your word is clear that we are saved by grace through faith, that you give us the gift of eternal life only if we will humbly receive it. So help those listening today who have a false assurance of salvation to see the truth of the word. And those that know you, may this grace that secures us, the work that you began, you promised to finish. The spirit whom you gave is an earnest, a deposit that what you started, you will totally complete. May this grace teach us to deny worldliness and ungodliness and to live holy and righteously in this present age. As we open our word, your word, we open our hearts to you. We pray that the Spirit would help us with the renewed mind that he has given us to see and understand the Scripture. Fill me, use me, anoint me. For Christ's sake, I pray. Amen. Take your Bibles with you this morning, Genesis chapter 39. If you're here for the first time, we just finished the epistle of James, and we will soon begin, Lord willing, an Old Testament book. But before we begin that, I want to address a number of issues, some that you've asked me about, some you've written me about, and some God has just burdened me to address. And so right now we are in a series on the subject of morality. And sadly, we live in a day where most Americans no longer blush. The things that used to create a red face now amuse us. And so we started this series with King David as we addressed the subject of avoiding moral failure. Then we looked at the woman caught in adultery, and we examined the subject of finding moral forgiveness. If you were here last time, we looked at Genesis 38 with Judah as we spoke on the subject of reaping moral compromise. And today, as you can see there on your outline, if you're online, there's a place to print it out. I want to address the subject of achieving moral victory. Now, we live in a sex-drenched culture that is covered over in sensuality and immorality, and it's a crisis that is not just true in America, it is now true across the planet. And Scripture reminds us that this very thing would happen at the end of time before the return of God's Son from heaven. And now Scripture here in these United States is colliding with the law of the land. And the family that was once the fabric of our nation is fast becoming unraveled. And sadly, more and more born-again Christians, when they stand for what's right, they seem awed. They are ostracized. By the way, religious liberty is never promised in the Bible, but persecution is. And so ultimately, we must not bow to Caesar, we must bow to King Jesus. And we live in a day where many Christians are asking a critical question, how do I, as a believer, 
make an impact in this kind of a culture. And God's method has always been the same. He uses a person who's distinctively different from the culture. It's not our likeness to the world that will win the world. It's our distinctiveness from the world. And we find such a person in Joseph. 25% of the book of Genesis is dedicated to this man. It began in chapter 37 when he was 17 years old, and it continues all the way through chapter 50 at his death at the age of 110. Let me set the context. If you read chapter 37, you will discover that he was a man loved by his father and sadly hated by his own brothers. And their hatred leads them to sell Joseph off to some Midianite traders. If you turn back a page to chapter 37, we're told under God's providence how the scheme unfolded. In Genesis 37, 27, Joseph's brothers, Judah, he devises an evil plan to which he says to his other nine brothers at this point, come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listen to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now drop down to verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar. Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. So he ends up in Egypt. And then in chapter 38, there is what we might think is an interruption to the biography of Joseph. And we studied it last time where Judah commits adultery with Tamar. And I believe God really includes this in the biography of Joseph to highlight a contrast. In chapter 38, Judah yields to temptation here in chapter 39, Joseph, who's tempted in the same way, refuses it. One flunked the, other, the test, the other passed it with flying colors. Both men teach us much about temptation. And let me just say that there's not a person in this room, including the Lord Jesus who is with us, who has not at some point faced temptation. And there's not a single person who at one time or another have not yielded to temptation except the Lord Jesus. Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. So temptation is common to everyone. And those temptations, the Bible is clear, comes in one of three realms. There's what we call the boastful pride of life. It might be the lust for a name, recognition, power, some title, some job. There's the lust of the eyes, which is temptation that comes in the material realm. It might be as big as a house. It might be as small as a piece of clothing. But then there's what the Bible calls the lust of the flesh. And these are the temptations that are related to the physical body whether it's gluttony or being lazy, or in the case at point this morning, sexual temptation. And it is in this realm, the lust of the flesh, that Joseph, like Judah, faces a temptation. And it is true that the word temptation never appears in this chapter. For that matter, it never appears in Genesis 3, 
when the first man and women fall, woman fall into sin. The enticement for another person's body to whom you are not married is called the lust of the flesh. And let me just say that whatever kind of temptation you may be facing this morning, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, the lust of the eyes, the principles that we find in this chapter of Scripture will directly apply to you. And there are principles here that we need to teach our children. Everything in the culture is aiming at your children to live like the culture. And unless we give them solid instruction from the Word of God, they will become, quote-unquote, like the culture. Now, if you're using your outline, the very first point that really sets the framework for this section of Scripture concerns Joseph, who was trusted by a prosperous master. Joseph trusted by a prosperous master. Now, if you read the biography of Joseph here in Genesis, it becomes very obvious that he was an incredibly successful person. And I want to suggest two reasons why. First, it's obvious that he was a man of industry, that he was a man of industry. Again, if you're online, there's a place for you to print out the outline. If you need help, ask the person who's monitoring the site. He was a man of industry. Notice how the chapter opens. Now, Joseph had, take, had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, brought him from, excuse me, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. So in the very first verse, two crucial facts are unfolded. The first concerns the place, namely Egypt. Now, Moses does not go into all the details, but certainly you can picture the scene. Like the Apostle Paul who arrives in Rome in chains, so does Joseph here in Egypt. He's a piece of property, and it's the very place that his great-grandfather, Abraham, had been many, many years before. But now he is looking at Egypt as a 17-year-old boy. And remember, Egypt is not Hicksville, USA. These are thriving cities. The Great Pyramid and the Sphinx had already been in place for nearly a thousand years when this event takes place. It's highly advanced, it's well organized, it's uh, a highly efficient and prospering culture. And we know that not just from what the Scripture records, but from Egyptian hieroglyphics. But uh, it also has the dubious distinction of being the den of iniquity. It's covered over in sin, especially immorality. And so, first, one of the things that you discover here is that it's a very religious culture. It has uh, at least a thousand gods and goddesses that they worshipped, and yet it's a very immoral culture, and quite often the two go together. Because religion simply is man's attempt to reach God. And all the religions of the world, including nominal Christianity, teach that you can earn your way to heaven by being a good person. But that's not the picture painted for us in Scripture. Christianity is not man trying to reach for God. It's God reaching down to man. It's a relationship with the living God. And when God reaches a man... He changes the person from the inside out. They become a new creation. 
They are born from above. They are born again. And you cannot be born again if you're trying to work your way to heaven. You will never see the inside of the kingdom. There must be a total brokenness where you put your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. But then when God forgives you, he comes to indwell you. He makes you a new creation, and he begins to change you from the inside out. So second, in addition to the place, I want you to notice the person to whom we are introduced. We learn of Potiphar, who is described here in verse 1 in two ways. Notice he's an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, and then he's described as the captain of the bodyguard. So he's the head of Pharaoh's secret service. In modern terminology, we would say that he's the head of the FBI or the CIA. He's a very influential person. Here's a timeline of Joseph's life that might help you just a little bit. He's born in Padan Aram. He's the 11th of 12 sons. He's six, the age of six, when he travels to Canaan with his family. He's 17 when he's sold as a slave. 28 when he interprets the dream for the butler and the baker. Uh, 30 when he interprets the dreams for Pharaoh. 37 when the years of plenty end and seven years of famine come. Uh, 39 when his family comes to get grain. Uh, his dad dies when he is 56 years old, and Joseph himself dies at the age of 110. So he's 17 years old when his brothers sell him to the Ishmaelites, Ishmael, Ishmaelites, who in turn sell him to the Egyptians. We know that he was 30 when he became the prime minister of Egypt. And as you study the passage carefully, you discover that he is in this prison for about two years. So he's down there uh, for 13 years from the time his brother, his brother sell him to the time he becomes prime minister. Uh, in two of those years, he's in this awful prison. Now look at verse 2, if you will. He's about 28 years old when we read, the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. The Bible plainly says the Lord was with Joseph. So while his brothers had deserted him, the Lord God had not deserted him. And though we're not told about his first duties, I assume that they were probably pretty minimal, normal kinds of things that you would give to a slave, but because he did them with such excellence, he was soon promoted to a position of supervision. And uh, I'm sure he probably had the attitude, look, if God wants me to be a slave, then I'm going to be the very best slave that I can be. And that ought to be your attitude, that ought to be my attitude, that we don't do anything half-baked that passionately we serve the living God. So he doesn't go down to Egypt planning revenge in his mind, and that's why I call him a man of industry. He doesn't go down there moaning and groaning, look, look where I am, I'm a lousy, no good slave in Egypt. No, he recognizes the providence and the sovereignty of God. And God is working in this man's life. Nothing happens by accident for the true born-again 
blood-bought child of God, that Joseph would fit under that category, of course, using Old Covenant terms. God is grooming Joseph. God is preparing Joseph. He's not ready to be the prime minister of Egypt. And many times, God brings us through a process. God has to prepare us before he can use us. God has to minister to us before he can minister through us. We all want the product, but we don't always want the process. And maybe you are here listening to me today and you say, God, what is going on in my life? Why am I under all this hardship? Why are you letting this happen to me? But the question you need to be asking is not why, but what? What are you trying to accomplish in my life, Lord, through this trial? What are you trying to teach me? How are you trying to shape me and equip me? So here's Joseph. He makes the best of it. If I'm going to be a slave, then I'm going to be the very best slave. And really, in many ways, he is exemplifying a verse that would be written centuries later. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those literally who are the called according to his purpose. It's an important verse. Every Christian should have it memorized. It's in the top 100 that I'm going to give you later this fall of 100 verses every Christian should know. It doesn't say that everything that happens to you is good. It says that God works everything together for good, and not indiscriminately, but to those who are the called. It's actually, it looks like a verb here in the NESB. It's actually a noun. The King James rightly renders it the called, a specific group of people by which all things work together for good. Now, unbelievers kind of loosely quote that verse and claim it for themselves, but they can't. It's only the providences of God as it is expressed in the life of the true believer to which it applies. So Joseph understood that while his brothers meant what they did for evil, he will later confess that God meant it for good in chapter 50 and verse 12. He trusts God's providence. And so like Solomon, he can say, whatever your hand finds you to do, do it with all your might. So one, he's a man of industry. Secondly, he's a man of integrity. Follow along now with me, if you will, in verse 3. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him, he did not concern himself with anything except the food with which he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now, several statements in this paragraph that underscore he's a man of integrity. Verse 4, we learn that he was Potiphar's personal servant that he was overseer over his house and over all that he owned. In verse 6, it says he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. In fact, he concerned himself, the text says, with nothing except the food that he ate. 
He wanted to choose what he wanted to eat day to day. Potiphar didn't even handle his own bank accounts. I mean, this was a trusted servant. This is a man of integrity. You don't give that kind of responsibility just to anyone unless they can indeed be trusted. So how did this all come about in Joseph's life? Is this all of God and none of Joseph, or is this none of God and all of Joseph? Well, uh, this is a good example of the balancing truths between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. It's a picture between the human and the divine. Joseph was a man of integrity. He was a man of ability, but he wasn't lazy. He was an industrious kind of young man, very creative. He did his job with excellence, and God can honor that. God could bless that. You know, God doesn't bless laziness. There's a lot of lazy people today who they just do what they have to do to get by, and if their boss doesn't notice, they're happy. So verse 2 says, the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 3 says, the Lord caused all that he did to prosper. Verse 5, the Lord blessed the Egyptians' house on account of Joseph. The Lord's blessing was upon all. I'm impressed with the fact that Potiphar, who as an Egyptian would have served many gods, understood that Joseph served the true living God. Verse 3 says, now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hands. You ought to circle that three-letter word, saw. Joseph did not have to announce to his boss that God was blessing him. It was obvious, which tells me something about Joseph. It tells me that he was not ashamed about his faith. Maybe like Daniel, who three times a day would go pray, and occasionally he'd get caught and seen by other people. Maybe Joseph did the same thing. Clearly, as implied by the statement of Potiphar's wife down in verse 14 when we come to it, he had revealed that he was a Hebrew, that he was a Jew. And so while he could have taken the credit for his unusual ability, he didn't. He wanted to give God all the glory, and that's one of the reasons that God could use him, for God will not share his glory with another. So Joseph had given a clear and consistent testimony about his relationship with the living God. And Potiphar understood that there was a direct cause-effect relationship between Joseph and the God whom he served. And I'm sure he maybe thought on many occasions, what a wonderful slave I have in Joseph. I wish all my slaves were like Joseph. I can't believe how smoothly my household runs, how everything on the inside and everything on the outside is better than it's ever been. I just wish all of my slaves served this God that Joseph calls Yahweh. Let me ask you a question this morning. Is there anything in your life that can be explained only by the hand of God? There ought to be. Now, please understand, God does not bless Joseph apart from his own free will, but in conjunction with his will. And Joseph had the kind of relationship 
with God where above all he wanted to please God, and so God was able to put his hand on his life. Verse 6 serves as kind of a summary of his accomplishments. Look at it. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. I mean, he was wise to stay out of Joseph's way because he was accomplishing something that no one else had ever done in his house. This man was competent. He had a positive outlook. He had godly character. He was handsome, but he was a slave. And so we need to ask, how could he have so much and end up as a slave? Well, bear in mind that success in the Christian life is not determined by your position, it's determined by your person. I don't care if you're a plumber or a garbage man or a pastor or the president of a corporation, that's insignificant to God the way the world may view your profession. The important question to ask is, is God at work in my life? Is there a touch of the Lord's power in my life? Now, we've already noted four times in the span of five verses that God was at work in Joseph's life. So my first point is that Joseph was trusted by a prosperous master. But in addition to being trusted by a prosperous master, Joseph was tempted by a persistent woman. He's tempted by a persistent woman. Now, the last sentence in verse 6 is really a perfect transition. If you are using the New American Standard, you'll notice the first word is highlighted in a bold print. That tells you that in the translator's mind, this is a new paragraph. And that's helpful when you see either a verse that's blackened or maybe in the middle of a verse, the first word is blackened. That tells you it's a new paragraph. You should read the preface to the New American Standard. It will give you a lot of simple helps in your Bible study. And the paragraph is the smallest unit of study by which we examine the Scripture to understand its context. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. The CSB renders it, now Joseph was well-built and handsome. This expression, handsome, by the way, is found only four times in the Old Testament. It describes outward beauty. It's used of King David. It's used of King David's son, Absalom. And it's used of Joseph's mother, Rachel. Rachel had all the good looks. And obviously, Joseph inherited some of that. Now, before long, he's tempted, and I want you to see how the devil is going to use Potiphar's wife to pull off this temptation. He doesn't leave a man like Joseph alone. He wants to ruin him. He tried to ruin him through his brothers. He was unsuccessful, as we'll see as you read the rest of the biography. And so now he uses the schemes of this shameless, adulterous woman. And by the way, the parallels between Joseph and the Lord Jesus constantly surface all the way through. And that's why many would describe Joseph as a type of Christ. And though he is tempted, no sin is ever recorded. He was a sinner. He did sin. We all stumble in many ways. But no sin is ever recorded about this man's life. That's only could be said of a few people in all the Bible. Of course, Christ is the only one who literally never, ever sinned. 
So there are several truths about this temptation that I want you to look at. First, this temptation was a pointed temptation. It was a pointed temptation. Point A there on your outline if you're taking notes, and you should take notes, and you should go home and read about it. I spent 30 hours this week just on this sermon, and I want it to sink and penetrate in your heart. I've been through this passage a dozen times but it was fresh for me all over again this week. Verse 7 begins, it, became, it came about after these events. And of course, the logical question to ask would be, after what events? After Joseph had risen to the position of comptroller here in Potiphar's estate. His temptation was not unrelated to his rise in power. Had he not proven himself to be a capable leader, this woman would hardly have ever acknowledged his existence. There was little chance that she would ever be interested in a slave. However, in the Egyptian culture, with leadership abilities and good looks, that's another thing. So he is in a position of leadership, and with it comes temptation, and very often success and prominence for the true believer can make them a prime target for temptation. Satan's not interested in the person who's asleep in God's eyes. They may fall into temptation, but not because of a direct assault of the evil one, probably just because they're carried away by their own fallen lusts. But when someone is in a position of prominence, they become a target for the devil. One of my professors, Dr. Howard Hendricks, would always tell us, there's a target painted on your back. Why? Because if God can take a pastor down, there's shock, there's shame, there's embarrassment, and there's great damage to the cause of Christ. And by the way, let me just remind you of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I've done it in every sermon so far in this series. Those are two verses 1 Corinthians 10, really, uh, 12 and 13 that you should memorize. Again, when I say the top 100 verses, I'm talking about passages. So sometimes there's two or three verses that are stuck together. So when we come to this, uh, some of us may have a lot of memorizing to do. But there's a certain uh, array of verses that you should know, not only for yourself, but for those children, for those loved ones, for those people that God will entrust you to disciple. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, if you know the context, he has just recorded a number of Israel's failings. And it would be easy to look at, you know, that's Israel, man. That's their problem. And Paul says, let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. Because when you think you've licked some sin in your life, that you're beyond being tempted, you better watch out. And then he says in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. In other words, there's no temptation that you will ever face that's unique to you. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you're able God is faithful. That is, there's a divinely appointed limitation to the temptation that may come your way. God will not allow your own sinful flesh or the world system or the devil, the three forces that wage war against the believer that we study in the discovery class. 
He won't allow any of those things to come upon you that you cannot handle. But with the temptation, notice, will provide the way of escape also. Notice the last phrase, that you may be able to endure. You see, the real test is whether you will hold up or whether you will fold up. And so here in Genesis 39, this same principle, though not yet penned by the Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul, is illustrated through Joseph's life. Potiphar's wife, to whom we're introduced here in verse 7, takes a very pointed approach. Notice, if you will, and it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire Joseph, and she said, lie with me. Now hold your finger here, would you, and turn to the right to the book of Proverbs. If you're new to the Bible, Psalms is about dead center, and right after the Psalms, you will come to Proverbs and turn to Proverbs chapter 7. Some of you are reading a chapter in Proverbs every day. There's 31 days in August and 30 days in September and 31 days in October, but there's a chapter for every day of the month. And so on Tuesday, if you are reading through Proverbs, as many of you do, you'll come to this passage, Proverbs chapter 7. Now, Potiphar's wife is a perfect picture of the woman that is described here. And in this chapter, you have a father who's giving counsel to his son and is reminding him to hide God's wisdom into his heart. To, to, uh, to treasure God's word, and one of the reasons is it will protect him from the seductive, adulterous woman. And so beginning in verse 6, he recounts his own experience when one day he was looking out the window. Here's Solomon. He's looking out the lattice of his house, and it says, "'For at the window of my house I looked out through my lattice, and I saw among the naive in discerning among the youths a young man lacking sense. Now notice Solomon describes him as naive and as lacking sense. That does not mean that he's stupid. He may be a whiz in math, but in the moral realm, he's lacking sense. You can have an incredibly high IQ, but lack moral direction. And if you do, then you can find yourself morally shipwrecked. Another person may be of average intelligence, but because he calls the Word of God his friend, to use Solomon's words, he finds that he is strong and consistently successful against the seductive woman. So here is a young man passing through the street. As far as we know, he doesn't have adultery on his mind. But neither does he have the things of God on his mind and in his heart. And so he's completely unprepared for what he is about to encounter. Verse 8, passing through the street near her corner, and he takes away to her house. Not deliberately, he just sets out for her house. But, you know, it's on his path. He's unaware of the danger that he's about to face. And he's unaware because he's naive. And he's naive because verse 4 indicates he never calls wisdom his friend to keep him from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. Now look at verse 9. In the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness, so this young man is going to the wrong place at the wrong time, which is often the occasion for sin. 
We studied that with David and Bathsheba, classic example. David really, at least at that moment in his life, exemplified naivete. He should have been out with the troops in battle, but he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Verse 10, and behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. Please notice she's dressed as a harlot. She's not a harlot. She's just dressed like one. And it's clear in verses 16 through 20 that she's married, that she comes from a wealthy home, that she's a woman of society, we might say. But in terms of her character, in terms of her conduct, she's a woman of the street. She's dressed to kill. Her clothing is provocative. It's suggestive. It's it's alluring. She's going after a man. And sadly, that's the way a lot of even Christian evangelical women dress. Let me say to the young ladies, if you think that's what you need to do to attract a man, you will attract the wrong kind of a man, and you'll become a statistic. Where in the evangelical church, the divorce rate is not that much different from that of the lost. Now, before he goes on to describe her tactic, Solomon tells us here in verse 11 something about her character. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is restless. She is the opposite of the woman in Proverbs 31 who loves her home. But in this woman's mind, the home is restrictive. She finds, it rest, she finds herself restless there like she's in a prison. Verse 12, she is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. She goes to places where she can meet men to satisfy her own lust. In some cities, it might still be in the square. Maybe it's in the club, the bar, some party. So she seizes him and kisses him. Like Potiphar's wife, there's no shame here. She's very forward, she's a predator, she goes after him, but the real seduction comes in her words. That's what Solomon is focusing on here, something that we will see Joseph never stays long enough around to listen to. And with a brazen face, she says to him, verse 14, I was due to offer peace offerings today, I have paid my vows. Now that's kind of a camouflaged kind of speech. She begins by using religious talk. She's been to the temple. Today, we'd say she's gone to church. She's paid her vows. She's done her religious duty. In other words, she wants him to know that she's no cheap piece of meat, that she's religious, that she's respectable. Her speech, it's smooth, it's slick, it's not genuine. She's outwardly religious, but her heart is a million miles away. She flatters this naive young man. Look at verse 15. Therefore, I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. She's saying, look, I I came looking for you. Literally, the Hebrew text reads, I have come out to seek your face. It's a Hebrew idiom, meaning I like you, you're handsome. I came looking for you, and now it's providential. Here you are. 
So having puffed up his pride, she now stirs up his lust, verse 16. I've spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. I've sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Now those are expensive spices. This is a wealthy woman, and her bed is just waiting for him. This is not some seedy prostitute. She wants him to know what kind of a woman she is. And now she makes him an offer he can't refuse. Verse 18, come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him. At the full moon, he will come home. In other words, there's no risk. My husband is several weeks away. He won't be back until the full moon. No one will ever know. We can spend a long, delightful night together. It's safe. You don't have to worry. But sin is never safe. It's never risk-free. They've already been spotted, verse 6. He was looking through his window, and he observed the whole thing. She thought nobody knew. But someone was watching the whole time. And that's often the way it is with adultery. People think it's secret, it's safe. But God has a way of putting eyes and ears around the person who is going after, quote-unquote, safe sex. But sex outside of marriage is never, ever safe. My wife and I were on vacation, and we're in a remote place in a gift shop, and who do we see? A pastor with another woman. He would have never have dreamed that we would be there. So the lie in our day is that sexual repression, sexual expression, experimentation is a good and healthy thing. And so this young, naive man, because from the start he did not call wisdom his intimate friend, verse 21 says he's headed for disaster. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Now go back to Genesis 39. We find the same kind of woman that we find here in Proverbs chapter 7, but she is encountering a very different kind of man. Look at Genesis 39 in verse 7. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and said, lie with me. Once again, a very direct approach. It's sudden, it's unexpected, it's shameless. And her approach comes not just through her look, but through her words. And let me remind the men who are listening today, our society, our churches are filled with Potiphar's wives shameless women who will bring good men down. And ladies, of course, the corollary is true. Our churches are filled with shameless men who will bring good women down. 
So how does he respond to such a woman? Well, let me tell you first how some Christian men might respond. Some would flirt with the temptation, enjoying the attention that the woman is giving. Still others might rationalize and think, well, let me, let me think this over. And Satan, he'll use whatever he can to bring you down. And I suppose this super pious man might say, well, Mrs. Potiphar, let, let, let's pray about this. But that's not what Joseph does. And I suspect that before she made this direct appeal, she probably did little flirtatious things to make conversation with him. She probably looked at him in a certain way. The Scripture speaks of a woman who captures a man by her eyes. Eyes can be clear and bright, or they can be seductive and sinful. And by the way, Satan has always hated the Jewish people. The heartache that they have experienced and are yet to experience in the time of Jacob's trouble, much of it has been directly an assault from the evil one. And here's Joseph, a really set-apart Jew, a Jew that God is ultimately going to use to preserve the nation, and Satan hates people like that. He could see that Joseph had a loving relationship with God. And so he doesn't like people like that. Here's a man, he's strong, he's handsome, he's a great leader, but he's passionate for the Lord. And so Satan tries to lure him through the only thing that Potiphar didn't give him, his wife. Now, I know Joseph could see this coming, and it's indicative in his answer. This is not a man who fantasizes sin. This is a man who fantasizes obedience. In fact, he not only says no, he gives three reasons for saying no. Look at verse 8. But he refused. If you forget the three reasons, please don't forget these three words. But he refused. That's just a flat-out no. That's a decision of the will. And to those who would rationalize, do not forget how this red-blooded single man with all of the natural desires and passions of youth just says no to her address. Now, why does he refuse? He gives three reasons. The first reason is because he would be unfaithful to his master. Look, if you will, at verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. He's saying, How can I betray my master's trust? He's a man who's invested everything in me. I'm not going to sell out the man who trusts me. So he tells her that he's, withheld, he's held nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. He had been put into a position of power, into a position of privilege, and he's not about to violate that, second, that sacred trust. But there's a second reason. Not only would he be unfaithful to his master, he would be unfaithful to himself. Look, if you will, at verse 9. There is no one greater in this house than I. Joseph had a clear-cut self-image of himself. It was beneath him to be involved immorally. He has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. There is no one greater in the house than I. Oh, that every man who ever got involved with a married woman 
with any woman. And any woman who would get involved with some man, single or married, ultimately may be getting involved with another person's husband or wife. They are violating a relationship with another person. So he has a strong moral conviction that it was wrong to have such a relationship with another man's wife. Though the Ten Commandments had not yet been written on tablets of stone, they had already been written on Joseph's heart because the law of God is written into our hearts. That's why cultures across the world who've never seen a Bible innately have the same morality that's expressed in the Ten Commandments unless they suppress it. So what concerns me so much of the immorality that is prevalent in our society is that we have kind of a cavalier attitude. It's only sex. It's none of your business. If there's two adults who consent, there's nothing wrong with it. And everything our government is doing, virtually everything, the only thing they're really interested in is sexual immorality. So our president came out this week and he says, well, I don't believe life begins at conception. Oh, really? No, it's a woman's right to kill her little baby in the womb in spite of the fact that the Supreme Court overlooked the Texas decision. But it's not just an act between two consenting adults. Not when you've seen what I've seen as a pastor. When you see the children who whimper when you see a woman who cries uncontrollably, like the woman I counseled this week in another state because her husband cheated on her and she thought it would never happen. When I hear a man, grown men weep, it's nobody else's business. When you think that way, you've bought into the reasoning of the evil one. No one ever sins in isolation. It always affects someone. Now look at Joseph's final reason. Not only would he be unfaithful to his master and unfaithful to himself, he would be unfaithful to his God. And it's really the climactic reason why the Lord God has blessed me and he's been with me and he's given me success and he loves me and I love him. Look at verse nine. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? He doesn't whitewash the sin of adultery. He calls it what it is, a sin against God. And that's what David ultimately said and confessed after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He recognized that there was no Old Testament sacrifice for adultery, that they should have covered him with a pile of stones. And the only thing he can cry out in Psalm 51, 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and you are blameless when you judge. He recognized that no man sins in isolation. And while adultery is a sin against myself and others, it is ultimately a sin against God. In addition, I want you to notice a second characteristic of this temptation. This temptation was a persistent temptation. It was a persistent temptation. Now, remember, temptation is any solicitation to evil. And so first it's pointed. She just blurts out, come lie with me, but it's persistent, verse 10. 
as she spoke to Joseph day after day. He did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Now, if you're living in the imaginary bubble that temptation once resisted will somehow vanish, let me pop that bubble for you. The same temptation can come again and again and again, as it did with Joseph. Maybe Potiphar's wife said, okay, Joseph, your religion may be different from mine. I understand that, but can't we at least be friends? Let's, all I want to do is talk. Maybe we can have lunch together. You know, you're a wise man. I could benefit from your counsel. Yes, do you think she was persistent like that? Of course I do, because the text says she spoke to Joseph day after day. And not only would he refuse to listen to her, appeal to be with her, he, he, he just, I'm not going to listen and I'm not going to be with her. He didn't flirt with sin. He didn't court sin. And so to help us really to see where they are in terms of their own personal repentance when someone falls into this kind of thing, I, I will ask them, well, tell me about this person you've been unfaithful with. Are you going to stay with her? Do you see her every day? Yeah, I see her every day. You know, I work with her. Then you better get a new job. Or there needs to be some major adjustments at the place you work. Oh, pastor, you don't understand. This, this is my job. Well, are you physically attracted? Or, yeah, are you emotionally attracted? Yes. Then you better get a new job. You can't go to work five days a week and be with this woman and think, oh, I'm just going to pull this off and I'll be fine. You know, we'll just be friends. No woman should ever hear that from her husband. Well, we're just friends. Any friend that you have with a woman should be in your wife's presence where you're mutually friends as husband and wife. Don't tell me you're just friends. We, you know, we just like to go to lunch and talk. Your ultimate friend should be your wife. Look, the relationship is not over if you're not willing to physically and emotionally separate yourself from the person. It's a pointed temptation. It's a persistent temptation. But it's a private temptation. The temptation was a private temptation. Now, what we find recorded in verse 11 is really her trump card, her final ambush. Notice, now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work. Joseph was just doing those things he was responsible for, and none of the men of the household were, was there inside. See, the measure of a person's character is what you'll do when you know no one else is looking. What you do when you know absolutely no one else will find out. What you are is what you do if you're absolutely certain no one else really is looking. And she must have thought, ah, I can persuade Joseph. Maybe he's afraid that his fellow slaves and workmen or even my husband will find out. But no one's around. So she boldly grabs him. She caught him, verse 12, by his garment, saying, lie with me. 
And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. I like the old English of the King James. It's a little wooden, but it's more literal to the Hebrew. It says, he fled and got him out. <laughs> he fled and got him out. Now, I know what some might reason. Wasn't Joseph being kind of a baby? Maybe he could have stayed and tried to win her over to the one true God. Maybe he could have converted her. But every time this sexual temptation is underscored in the New Testament, there's one command, and it's flee. Don't fight it. Flee from it. What a difference between King David and Joseph. David lingered and watched Bathsheba. Had he done what Joseph had done, had he immediately gone back into the palace and shut the door, he ne never would have made such a mess. Flee, youthful lust, Paul writes to Timothy. And so with every temptation, there's a way of escape. And the way of escape for this sexual kind of temptation is to flee, to run from it. So he slips out of his garment Leaving it in her hand, he goes outside where there is other people, where no other advances can be made. He fled and got him out. Now, if you reason with lust, then you will ultimately yield because you cannot fight it. You must flee it. So he, he lets her take his outer garment because his purity is more important to him than that coat. His reputation for the living God is more important to him than failing in this realm. Well, this woman's lust was quickly turned to hate, and that's often the way it happens. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to me, he came in to me to lie with me, and I screamed. She probably took her hands, maybe messed up her hair, maybe even scratched her body some, and yelled, help, help. She had a plan. If he resisted, he would regret his decision. And that's often as it is. With adultery, when you, when you turn down the person that has gone after you, then they hate you. Verse 15, when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she calls in the men of the household. She accused him of attempting to forcibly violate her. And because no one was close by, she could raise her voice, and who could question her? Oh, I've got the garment. Here's the proof right here. What are the slaves going to do? Are they going to question Potiphar's wife and call her a liar? I don't think so. In addition, he's a foreigner. He's one of those Hebrew, you know, one of those Jews. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. She just played the part for all it's worth. She didn't want anyone to move the so-called evidence. 
Then she spoke to him with these words, the Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. And I'm certainly not alone with other Bible expositors to understand that his anger is not so much directed at Joseph as it is against his wife. You say, how do you know that? Forget hieroglyphics for a moment. Egyptian law does teach. It does teach that if someone were to violate another person, it was punishable by death, he would be immediately executed. But forget that for just a moment. If Joseph had violated this woman, he'd be a dead dog before the day was over. And everything that this man thought about this servant, which he knew was true, would be erased. But he knew it was true. He knew this was not Joseph. He knew his wife. So what does he do? He has to maintain order in the household. So he has to throw him in jail. So verse 20, Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the jail. Doesn't have him executed. Should have under Egyptian law, but he knows better. He knows what is really the scoop. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. You mean to tell me that the Lord was with Joseph, as it says seven times in this chapter, and he ends up in prison? There's not a single verse in the Scripture contrary to prosperity theology that says that you are exempt from hardship and difficulty. The Lord was with Joseph, whether he was in the penthouse or whether he's in the prison. Now, how are we going to apply this passage of Scripture this morning? Let me quickly, we're almost out of time, suggest three applications. Number one, really maybe four. When, when we are most successful, we are often the most miserable, most vulnerable to sexual temptation. When we're most successful, we're often the most vulnerable. And how true that was in Joseph's case, things were really going well. He had been delegated responsibility. He had been given authority. He was popular. He was liked. He was respected by his fellow servants. And it's often in the midst of success that people will let their guard down. And God knows that. That's why he gave this warning to the people of Israel as they walked into the promised land, Deuteronomy 6. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you shall eat and be satisfied. Then... In the midst of this great success and blessing, watch yourself, lest you forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. God warns that it's often in the midst of prosperity that we are most vulnerable. And in America, we live in a leisure 
oriented society. We have entertainments and blessings that few countries in the world enjoy. And many Christians have let their guards down. The average American has let their guard down. There are some Christians who should be here this morning, but you're still crying COVID when it's no real danger to you. Oh, but it's convenient. It's just convenient. I'd rather watch you preach here from my living room couch than in that pew. Second, to resist sexual temptation, we must avoid verbal and visual stimulation. Now, verse 10, we read it, he didn't listen to her or even didn't want to even be with her. What a stark contrast to so many today. People entertain music, books, websites. And look, I know there are some things that are just in your face, but if you can't visit a, a, a website like Fox News and, and there's some deviant ad that they have, then, then don't visit it at all. If you don't have enough spiritual steel in your spine, if you're rationalizing some of the shows that you're watching because there's just a little bit of sex in it, then you better stop. That's what this couple did that I counseled this week. They started together watching trash. And it was a short throw from there to adultery. Put on the Lord Jesus. Make no provision for the flesh in regards to its loss. Little by little, you open the window of your eye which comes into your soul with trash, and you will fall. Third, to resist temptation, you must be more concerned with what God thinks than what man thinks. Here's a guy so filled with integrity, willing to forfeit his own freedom in order to reject this woman's offer that he might serve his Lord. And let me say, if you choose to serve the Lord today and you don't go to some of the places and you're not in tune with some of the shows and movies and series that the average pagan and, yes, even pastors who use his illustrations and the pulpit are in tune with, then you'll be called legalistic. You'll want to watch or listen to the final message in this series, still some weeks out. Finally, our character is formed by the sum total of right decisions we make. Our passage reminds us that this temptation took place day by day. It took place over an extended period of time. Joseph did not deal with this temptation in one momentous occasion. It was over. It didn't stop. And that's the way temptation often comes, day by day by day. Look, evil is growing at an unprecedented rate in our world today. So what kind of a man, what kind of a woman will it take to make an impact in this kind of a society? It takes a person who is distinctively different. Now, you may be here today, and you feel like you've messed up your life so bad. You just feel like your life is in shambles. If you've never met Christ, He can forgive you with His precious blood. And if you're a Christian... While you might not be able to erase some of the consequences of bad decisions that you've made, 
God can give you a fresh start. Seven times in this passage, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord caused all Joseph did to prosper. The Lord blessed him on account of Joseph. Whatever he did, the Lord made him prosper. And what God did for Joseph, he can do for you if you'll let him. Now, our Father, we thank you for this passage this morning. May these lessons be embedded into our hearts and minds. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.